Welcome to church this weekend as we do celebrate Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I trust that you'll be able to do something today um, or over at least weekend at least to show your dad how much you love him and, uh, and what he means to you. Uh, and, and to celebrate and appreciate the role of fathers in our lives. You know, the kids of Wangaratta Baptist Church have put together a, a little something to celebrate dads today. So enjoy that now, and I will be back with the message after this. I thought the dryer was shrinking my clothes. Turns out it was the refrigerator all along. <laughs> Is swimming with sharks expensive? It cost me an arm and a leg. This graveyard looks overcrowded. People must be dying to get in. <laughs> Why did the invisible man turn down the job offer? Tell me about it. Because he couldn't see himself doing it. I forgot how to throw a boomerang the other day. Then it came back to me. Where do you learn to make a banana split? At Sunday school. <laughs> What did the ocean say to the shore the other day? I don't know. Nothing, it just waves. <laughs> Why don't eggs tell jokes? Hmm, don't know that one either. They'll just crack each other up. <laughs> Which is faster, hot or cold? Hot, because you can catch cold. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to all the dads. I love my dad because he works hard for us. I love my dad because he gets me treats. I love our dad because he lets me work with him. I love my dad because he's the best daddy in the world. I love him so much because he pushes me and Aaliyah on the swings. Happy Father's Day. Love you. I Happy Father's Day, Dads. Happy Father's Day, Dad. We love you. And we thank you. Happy Father's Happy Day. Father's Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Do you ever find yourself daydreaming about what life was like before COVID? You know, when we could go to any shop we liked or any cafe whenever we liked, before we had to check in whenever we went, wherever we went with a QR code, when we could come to church in freedom and, and not have to worry about density limits or restrictions or not being able to come. When we could leave the house without having to wear a mask. You know, I find myself doing that from time to time. And, and, and really, it, it's in hope that, that we will get back to that very quickly. That as a society, we will snap back to life as normal. However, we know that that will probably be un unlikely. And there will be lingering elements of this tumultuous time staying with us for quite some time yet. 
you know, change to how we live our lives is something we are adapting to. Some adapt quite easy and just roll with the punches and maintain their, their positive outlook on life. But for many of us, you know, we're, we're groaning inwardly and often outwardly as well at all that is going on. You know, we're frustrated. We can't understand the logic or lack of logic behind seemingly arbitrary rules and regulations and struggle with the uncertainty, struggle with the lack of compassion in our community and, and struggle to see a clear pathway out of all of this mess. Can you imagine what it would have been like if you were a Jew in the first century and you rightly believed that Jesus was the Messiah and you became a follower of Christ? Can you imagine the change that would have been required in your thinking, in, in what you did, in, in what you ate, in who you gathered with, in your rituals that you used to observe and, and new teaching that you were supposed to, to abide by? You know, how did that all fit in with the thousands of years of your religion, your way of life as a Jew? What were you supposed to do with the gospel and, and all that that entails? How were you supposed to adapt to a new world you now found yourself in? For a Jew, the gospel was so radical and other to what they'd known and experienced and even how they lived. And Romans, as we know, covered a lot of this. The gospel is the power that saves us. It is the gospel of peace. Last week, we learnt judging others is foolish because God is the judge. The gospel of peace, it brings reconciliation between us and God. Peace to those saved by the gospel who are spared God's wrath. And we were asked the question, what is taking our peace away from us? Chaos, frustration, fear. You know, encouragement was to bring the gospel of peace to other people, to be a calming presence in the midst of chaos, to be a voice of reason in the middle of anarchy, to bring peace, to bring the peace and comfort of Christ with us to people who are struggling to cope with everything right now. You know, the love, most loving thing we can do for our friends and family is to help them have an encounter with Jesus, this Jesus who through the gospel, brings us peace. That's, that's what we, where we ended last week. And this week we continue our series in Romans, looking at verses 12 through 29 of chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at the gospel of justification. So first up, right off the bat, before we get into how, you know, the, the, the change would, was happening for these Jews struggling to deal with the changes in life, First up, what does justification mean? What does it mean to be justified? I once remember someone explaining it to me like this, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's a simple way of thinking about justification, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. But what does it mean though? Well, in Christian theology, Justification is God's righteous act of removing the condemnation, guilt and penalty of sin by grace, while at the same time declaring the unrighteous to be righteous through faith 
in Christ's atoning sacrifice. So that's the, the theological definition of justification. I think I still prefer just as if I'd never sinned. That sort of sums it up, is that we, we become right with God. We are justified. For Jewish believers, though, their whole life had been lived around a religious calendar of animal sacrifice to pay for their sins. Their justification came by adhering to the law. And so they lived a strict life of obedience to maintain their justification. Yet now through Jesus, that is the work of God and it had been completely done for them by Jesus. So what were they supposed to do? How were they supposed to live and even think? This was a radical change for Jews who were believers in Jesus. And Paul knows that this was a struggle for the Jewish believers. And so he unpacks and goes on to teach about the gospel and justification in Romans 2. And today we're going to begin with verse 12. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul's basic principle here is this. Everyone is a sinner. For Jews who have the law that was handed to them, uh, handed to Moses on the mountain, Mosaic law, they have broken it and will be judged by it. But so too the non-Jews, they've broken the moral law. Within each of us, and I'll explain this moral law a bit more, within each of us is the deep knowledge of what is right and wrong. We know deep down what is right and wrong, not because we're taught right and wrong, but because We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. Now I think of it a bit like it's our conscience. What is that voice that speaks inside of you that gives you that that feeling that that something you're about to do or thinking about is wrong or right? You know, what is it? Well, I believe that is God's image in you testifying to right and wrong. We would call that moral law. We have been created with that in us because we're created in the image of God. An example for you. Why is murder wrong in every culture on earth? If we're all created, if if we weren't, sorry, if we weren't all created in God's image and possess this moral law as an innate part of our creation, or moral code as humanity, it would be plausible that cultures would exist where murder was completely fine and a non-issue. Well, that isn't true. No culture on earth until quite recently um, has ever permitted murder. You know, it used to only be that in warfare, 
was it considered possible to take the life of another human being without you know, consequence in, in one sense because of the kill or be killed aspect of war? Just randomly murdering someone has never been okay. Now, in certain parts of our society, as people have chosen to ignore God and, and harden their hearts towards him, murder, it seems, is now state-sanctioned and approved. A prime example is the abhorrent and sinful practice of abortion that is a stain on our society. And even more recently, the, the legalisation of euthanasia falls into that category too. Murder for convenience. That, that's what abortion is. It's murder for convenience. Your murder is never the solution to what you might think is a problem. So that's one clear example of moral law, visible across all cultures for millennia. The Jews, however, they also had ritual law. You know, God had spoken to them. He'd revealed himself to them. He'd revealed more of himself to them than anybody, any other, other culture. And he also revealed what pleased him. And so the Jews had, had, they had ritual law. And Paul is saying that regardless of whether you break ritual law or moral law, everyone is a sinner. But it is possible to honour God. And those that honour God, regardless of ritual or moral law, those who do the will of God will be justified. You know, ritual law and, and, and moral law, they, when they boil down to it, it's, they're the same thing. They're basically right and wrong are their basic elements. And Paul never distinguishes between ritual and moral law here when he refers to the Mosaic law. And so the penalty of not keeping uh, the law was the same. It was judgment. But those that became doers of the law, Paul says, those that honoured God in a way that they lived, well, God considered them righteous. And Paul explains that this is the result of the gospel. As he says in verse 16, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's gospel includes judgment. If you are ever hearing the gospel from anywhere else and it does not include judgment, then it's not the gospel. It's something else. And so when it comes to the gospel, for those that believe, it brings justification to the believer. And this justification is displayed by doing the will of God, being doers of the word of God, not just hearers, which Paul speaks about in verse 13. The gospel is the power that saves us from judgment. It brings peace between us and God. And through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are justified. Now, that is a massive change for a Jew and a change that would not come easily. And so Paul then goes on in the rest of this chapter and into chapter three, which we'll get to next week, to explain how the Jews had failed in their thinking and practice. And, and so they too were guilty and needed the gospel, which is the power to save them too. And so from verse 17, we come across the, the, the guilt of arrogance. 
verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of the truth, and you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are bought idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. you know, Paul's mood changes considerably here. He's very stern in his condemnation of the arrogance of the Jews. And, and he should know because he was one. He was one of the best Jews a Jew could be. An incredible air of arrogance and boastfulness had become part of Jewish culture because of the special relationship they had with God. A covenantal relationship, which, by the way, they broke over and over and over and over again. You know, Barclay writes, the Jew believed that everyone was destined for judgment except himself. It would not be any special goodness which kept him immune from the wrath of God, but simply the fact that he was a Jew. The Jew, Jews believed that they were superior to everyone else and they were arrogant. And Paul decides to knock them off their high horse with a few home truths. They weren't any better than the people they looked down their noses at. Now, I don't think Paul was claiming that the Jews literally and, and typically practiced theft, adultery and sacrilege. In fact, the Jews were known by their Gentile neighbours as living by higher ethical standards than they did. What Paul meant was that when these sins are properly understood in light of Jesus' teaching of Matthew 5 as involving coveting, lusting and idolatry. Jews as well as Gentiles are guilty of all of them. See, it's the state of the heart, not just the external actions of an individual that God sees. You see, your neighbours are observing them. Their neighbours were watching what was going on, how they lived, what they did, how they went about their business and day-to-day life. And what they're observing in these Jews did not cast God in a good light. The Jews were blessed to be a blessing. Their special relationship with God was to, beacon, to be a beacon of light to the world. They were supposed to be excellent ambassadors for God, sharing God with the nations around them. It was supposed to be that, that people would look on to the Israelites' relationship with God with envy, that they wanted to be part of that. But instead of being there to serve God and humanity, the Jews became proud and arrogant and self-serving as it showed. The people around them, their neighbours, saw their inconsistency and despised God because of his people. And here is a tale of caution for us as Christians. We too, if we are not careful, might also fall into the guilt of arrogance because of the relationship that we have with God if we too become proud and hypocritical. 
People are observing us. They are seeing how we live. They are seeing how we are dealing with these current circumstances. They're taking note of how we deal with adversity and stress. They can see the inconsistencies in our lives, particularly if what we profess with our mouth, we don't back up with how we live. You know, no one likes to be around a hypocrite. Charles Spurgeon once said, sincerity makes the very least person to be of more value than the most talented hypocrite. You know, people can see right through us when we're fake and hypocritical. And we certainly don't represent God well if what we say is not backed up with how we live. The people around us are in desperate need of hope. Why not bring some with you wherever you go? Be that resilient presence of calm confidence. So, so Paul, he, he criticised the Jews for their hypocrisy, but he also had a go at them for their pride. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride so easily separates us from God because pride says fundamentally, I don't need God. Pride makes us fall into the trap of thinking that we are better than anyone else. But the gospel so clearly says the opposite. In fact, the gospel is the, the greatest force for equality in our world. It says, the gospel says, that we are all sinners in need of a saviour. We have all failed. We have all fallen short. We all need the grace of God to save us. So don't fall into the trap of pride because we're saved from God's wrath. In fact, it is what should motivate us to love, honour and serve him more excellently. The guilt of arrogance will justly land upon the hypocritical and the prideful. So heed Paul's warning against these pitfalls because ultimately it is our heart that matters to God. Paul explains that it is truly our heart that matters to God, not anything that we might choose to do externally just to show others that we believe in God. Romans 2 verse 25 says, for, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So putting it simply, the Jews felt circumcision guaranteed their acceptance by God, provided they didn't sin very much. You know, and some Christians look at baptism similarly. They believe that baptism guarantees salvation. And I hate to say, baptism doesn't guarantee you anything. 
baptism is something we do in obedience to God. It's basically an outward declaration, a a testimony that we have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul reminded these people, these Jews in the first century, that reality is more important than profession and obedience more vital than testimony. It's our heart that matters to God. You know, circumcision would not shield these Jews from God's wrath if they failed to do what he commanded. You know, it's like getting a a new wardrobe full of clothes with crosses on them, with with Christian sayings and Bible verses or, or a tattoo or something. Like you're advertising to everyone that you're a Christian, you know, that you're, you're out there saying, yeah, I'm a Christian with what you're wearing. So that as, when people look at you, they can see that you're a Christian. But then you swear at the kid who zooms past you on a bike in the footpath a little bit too, cro- too close on your way down to the shops. Or, or you treat that person out the shop badly because you're having a bad day. You know, the clothes that are worn are not what guarantee your acceptance by God. So let me put it like this. Cans and bottles have labels on them to indicate what's inside. When you go to the pantry and it's full of tins, the only way to know what's inside the tin is the label. Circumcision was a, a label, if you like, and implied that the Jew was obedient to God. However, if he was not completely obedient... The label was not only worthless but misleading. It's like, you know, you go to get your, your, your tin of, of, um, of crushed pineapple and, and inside it is tomatoes. Not quite right. The contents of the can are more important than the label. And similarly, if a Gentile was completely obedient to God, the absence of the label of circumcision was not of major consequence. The Jews, however, had put more emphasis on the presence on the label than on the contents of the can. And Paul's point was that disobedience brings condemnation and perfect obedience theoretically brings salvation, regardless of whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. Now, we know that that perfect perfect obedience for us mere humans is impossible. That's why we need the gospel that saves us. And Paul goes on to say that the person who truly praises God is not one who merely wears the label of circumcision, but one who really obeys God. Such a person has a circumcised heart, if you like. You know, heart circumcision is is a spiritual operation that the Holy Spirit performs, not a physical operation that that um, conforms to the letter of Mosaic law. The truly obedient person will not only praise God, but God will also praise him. He will not just receive the praise of men for his professed obedience to God. And so it's abundantly clear, it really is, that, that our heart is what matters to God, a heart of humble obedience in submission to his will. In fact, what Paul has been teaching is a God-fearing Gentile was more pleasing to God than a disobedient Jew because God delights in obedience. And obedience is not something that comes easy for all of us because to be obedient to God is to surrender our will to His. It is to sacrifice our desires for them to be replaced by His. It is to sacrifice our grip 
and to let go. And when we let go, we demonstrate our complete trust in God. We demonstrate that our heart and our actions are in submission to the will of God. Billy Graham said, Confession and repentance might be described as the negative side of submission. This involves getting rid of everything which hinders God's control over our lives. Yielding to God might be described as the positive side, placing ourselves totally into the hands of God. You know, we don't need to be in control because we know that God is. Dwight L. Moody said, and I love this, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Uh, and, you know, as, as, I, as I come to close this message today, I want to end on that point. Let God have your life. Let God have your hopes and dreams. Let God have your passions and what drives you. Let God have your energy and focus. Let God have your trust and obedience. Let God have your life because he can do more with it than you can. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for the work of sanctification that you've done for us in the gospel. I pray your grace upon humanity would flourish and overflow particularly now. Lord God, I ask that you protect us from falling into the guilt of arrogance, of pride and hypocrisy. May we instead receive your blessings as we submit our hearts fully to you. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. May we follow you in glad submission to your will. Help us to let go of control and hand that to you. Help us to surrender all of who we are in full and complete trust in you. Lord, we know that you are in control of all things. You hold everything in your hands. Hold my life too. Lord, I give you my life. Use it to do more than I ever could. Lord, I surrender my hopes and dreams to you. May they be yours. I surrender my passions to you. May they be yours. I surrender my energy and focus to you. May they be yours. I surrender my trust and obedience to you alone. Thank you for all you've done for me, continue to do for me and will do for me. May I live my life worthy of the justification that I have received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for joining with us for church again today. I look forward to being back as soon as we can. And uh, until then, uh, I'll say blessings to you all.